stuff that he needs to get through in terms of understanding this self and the mind, self and the brain concept. And so I think we'll, without further ado, we'll just move right into that and then uh, save some time for questions later. Thank you. Okay. So um, this material about self and the mind, self and the brain uh, is easy to get intellectual about or conceptual about and then wander into what the Buddha called a thicket of views. And as much as we can, I'd like to keep trying to return back into direct experience. What's the direct experience of uh, the apparent uh, uh, I, the apparent self? Okay. So to dive in, uh, to tackle any kind of messy territory, it's really useful to clarify what you mean by the words you're using. So three key notions here, three key words, three key distinctions. Uh, first, person is a, we all are a person. There are persons, right? Traditionally, there's a real question, and we're going to explore this question, is there really a self? But there's no question that there's a person. In other words, um, at a basic level of analysis, uh, you know, your body is different from the body of the person on either side of you. Your history is distinct. Uh, persons have moral standing. They have moral responsibilities as well. Uh, it's the totality of the body-mind over time. That's the person. That's, as much as possible, who we're addressing when we use personal pronouns, like you. And as much as possible, that's what we're speaking from when we use a word like I or mine. Uh, it is interesting to think about the degree to which the Buddha, who uh, was a radical teacher of uh, the argument that there really is not either an eternal soul self or an ordinary psychological I or self, uh, who yet he routinely used the word I and you, or me and mine. I think he meant typically the person when he used those words. Second, by self, uh, what we mean here is not the cosmic capital S self. Uh, we don't mean the person. We mean the ordinary conventional uh, sense of, of um, being the owner of experiences and the agent of actions that is used in Western psychology and Western philosophy. It's the I in I want a cookie. Or the me and uh, do you love me? Although that starts to blur into the person in interesting ways. Or the mine in or my in, excuse me, uh, when we came back from the break, uh, you're sitting in my chair. Okay? And the thesis we'll be exploring, and you need to really please see for yourself, is that that conventional I or ego, etc., uh, the presumptive ego, or I, uh, changes over time and increases and decreases and ebbs and flows, a lot related to uh, whether or not there's an, a, a real opportunity for, for the pleasant or there's a real threat of the unpleasant or an interaction with another person. Okay. See for yourself. And then the last is to talk about awareness. Here, too, we, we mean awareness um, in the conventional sense, not in terms of capital A, cosmic awareness, and divine awareness, what have you, but simply the awareness that the cat has of the mouse or the mouse has of the cat. Uh, awareness is a field that, in ways that are still very unclear from a scientific perspective, contents of mind are represented. 
For example, if you uh, observe the simple fact that you know there are various contents arising in the field of awareness, ranging from you know the meanings of the words I'm conveying, or your eyes being drawn to some sight, or a memory coming up, or a wish coming up, or a sensation in your body that prompts you to move in your chair, etc. Um, those contents ebb and flow, arise and pass away in a representational field. Uh, the Buddhist thesis was that that representational field is actually discontinuous and arises along with its contents in different ways. Uh, that could well be true. Uh, experientially, the representational field of awareness does have a sense of continuity to it, generally speaking, unless your mind is incredibly quiet. Uh, so that's what we mean by awareness. And we're not conflating self with awareness. Self is a content the, or the apparent self, the, the, the sense of being an I or a sense of possessiveness, or a sense of identification with something, or taking something personally, right? Those everyday experiences of I-ness or selfness that we have are contents, just like a sensation in your knee, arising and passing away in the field of awareness, which itself, right there, has some radical implications. To regard self-related representations, self-related activations, uh, self or, or personal memories, things of that kind, um, as simply one more content of mind, not privileged in any way. Okay. So the conventional notion of self, to, un- to kind of name its four attributes that are usually implicit when someone starts talking about I or mine, uh, is that first it's unified. There's just one self, right? There's just one I. Right. Second, that it's stable, that the I who experienced fourth grade is still basically the I who's sitting in this room today. Okay. Third, that it's essentially independent of experiences. It has experiences, things happen to it, but it is in a sense categorically, categorically distinct from, separated from, dualistically distinct from, apart from, uh, circumstances and experiences. And then last, identity, that's who we are. That's it. That's the core of the matter. That's who I am. The I is who I am, in a sense. Right? These are attributes that are embedded in, or at the essence of, uh, the ordinary sense of being a self. The question, of course, is whether or not they're actually true. In other words, these are the presumed attributes of a presumed self. And these views arise and pass away in the space of awareness. But the question is, are they actually true? Are they actually true? And is what they point to or allude to actually existent? So I thought we could start our inquiry into that question with a direct experiential practice, uh, which will take about 15 minutes or so, and then we'll come come back and talk about it. Uh, In this practice, we'll start out seated, and then at a certain point, I'll encourage you to to be aware visually of of the people around you, as well as just sensorily in general. Uh, Along the way, I'll suggest that you stand up. You don't have to if you don't want to, and By the way, I should say this about any and all practices. Feel free to ignore our suggestions. Feel free to adapt them to your own way, to your own needs. 
uh, feel free to uh, step out of the practice altogether. It's really okay. Take good care of yourself. You know, on the one hand, while it's, I think there's more value the further you go into the deep end of the pool. Be sure you can swim back on your own, because we're outnumbered here. This is not therapy. This is not an encounter group. You know, make sure you can swim back on your own. Okay. So, uh, and then at uh, a certain point in the process, I'll suggest you walk around the room and take the body for a walk. And then last, that you start engaging people in the eyes. Throughout, you're going to be doing two things. You're going to be playing around with the suggestions, and then there's going to be a kind of a mindful awareness of, whoa, what happens with the suggestions? And throughout, I encourage you to explore what it's like to have as little sense of I as possible. And to be aware of um, how the sense of I, or me, or mine, or self, conventional self, increases or decreases, or shifts in one direction or moves in another direction, moment to moment to moment. Okay, so let's try it, experientially and directly. And as the Buddha said a long time ago, in Pali, Ehipasiko, which is see for yourself. Okay. Okay. So, if you could, just be aware of sitting here. And you can do this initially with your eyes closed, which might make it a little easier. And take a moment to be aware of the sensations of breathing. By the way, if uh, tuning into the body in general or the breathing in particular, is it all uncomfortable for you? As it is for uh, many people, uh, particularly those who've had painful experiences or even traumatic ones, feel very free, please, to pick another object of attention, such as the sensations in a different part of your body, like the feet or the hands, or something visual around you, including uh, the Buddha up here, Um, the two Buddhas up here, or uh, something nurturing from your memory or a a thought or a saying like, may I be happy or may beings be happy. Just do what works for you. Although I will refer to the breath as the main object of attention. Okay. So get a sense, if you can, of the whole body being here in the chair. and the sensations in the whole body that ebb and flow with each breath. And then explore the difference experientially between saying softly in your mind or uh, there is breathing compared to I am breathing.
be aware of some other body sensation. Maybe the pressure of your thighs on the chair or something else if you like. And explore the difference between there is pressure in the thighs, for example, compared to I have pressure in my thighs. Okay. Wiggle your toes and notice the difference between there is wiggling in the toes and I am wiggling my toes. Okay. Move the fingers gently of one hand and notice the difference between (coughs) fingers are moving and I am moving my fingers. Okay, be aware of sounds. Notice the difference between there are sounds and I am hearing. In a moment, prepare to open your eyes. And as you do that in a moment, notice the difference between there is sight or even an object of sight, like there is the carpet or there is my knee, compared to 
I am seeing the carpet, or I am seeing, or I am seeing my knee. So as you like, gently open your eyes. You might gently swivel your head from side to side, not making eye contact with anyone. And as new objects of vision come into the field of awareness, again, notice the difference between there is whatever, like there is a shawl or there is a cup compared to I am seeing a shawl or I am seeing a cup. In a moment, if you like, stand up in a moment. And as you stand up, notice the difference between there is standing or even there is the decision to stand compared to I am standing or I am deciding to stand up. Okay, as you like, please stand up. Explore the difference between there is standing and I am standing. Right. 
in a moment, engage little movements as you stand in place. And related to those little movements, be aware of the difference between there is deciding to, let's say, open the hands, compared to I am deciding to open the hands. So do those little movements. Be aware of the ways in which decisions can be made or what are called the executive functions of choosing and prioritizing and focusing can persist without necessarily needing to identify with them as me in the sense of self. In a moment, we will take the body for a walk and gently walk around this room. Please don't make eye contact if if you can avoid it and stay in this room. And as we do this for three to five minutes or so uh, in silence, just see what it's like to walk, to move to turn left, to turn right, to avoid bumping into someone else, to speed up, to speed, to slow down with as little sense of I as possible. And be aware of what increases or decreases the sense of I. All right? As you like, being a little thoughtful of not uh, tipping over any teacups, um, take the body for a walk.
feel free to do little experiments like increasing or decreasing the energy in your body or bouncing up and down a little bit or moving your arms, continuing to explore what it's like to have a body, abide as a body with a minimal sense of self. Okay, come to standing. All right. And then in a moment, we will be making eye contact with other people. First standing and then moving around the room eye contact that probably lasts only a few seconds or so at a time, although longer is perfectly fine. And as eye contact is made, see if you can be also mindful of what happens to the sense of I uh, as eye contact is made or broken. So if you like, gently where you are, Let your gaze start traveling over the eyes of other people in this room, seeing what that's like. Perhaps exploring the sense of engaging the eyes of others as others as a person, distinct from others as an I. Others as a whole being, 
compounded of many, many parts, transiently arising and passing away moment to moment, distinct from others having an I that's coherent and intact and unified watching you through the eyes. And then as you like, take the body again for a walk, this time allowing yourself to meet the gaze of others as you move about the room for the next few minutes and seeing what it's like in terms of effects on the sense of self. And start making your way back to your chair, continuing to make eye contact from time to time with other people. You're welcome to sit down once you get to your chair.
Okay. Notice the difference, as, as before, between there is sitting and I am sitting. And as we engage language in a moment more deeply again, be aware of the difference between there is comprehending and I am understanding. Or there is speaking compared to I am speaking. So what I'd like to do is to hear from a few people about what you observe directly in your experience about the distinction between the, let's say, impersonal mode of experiencing or uh, acting even in terms of those executive functions of choosing or deciding and the personalized or selfed, the selfed mode of experiencing and acting. What were some of the things? And if you could just, if you don't mind, please stand up and just call it out loudly enough so we can move along without having to run the mic. Okay, in the back there? What, right, yeah. Thank you, okay. Other people? Um, Louder if you can. I used I, I felt myself right here in my head when I didn't, I felt everything in my body or the back of my head. Ah, so I was associated with the sense of coming into the head, whereas not I was more the whole body. Thank you. Okay, others? Great. Um, it was interesting when I was making eye contact with other people. I um, didn't want people to think I was looking mean. So I. Uh, <laughs> 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 so I smiled a little, but I didn't want to get myself into it too much. <laughs> when you worry about other people, it sort of enters your own self. Okay, right. You Thank did you. You a really good job. <laughs> okay, great. Back there, super. When the eye was present, you're saying. Ah, interesting. All right, thank you. Others? I was kind of horrified by the process. I was kind of horrified by the process because as I observed what I did when I was an eye, as opposed to observing there is this or there is that, I realized I was creating whole worlds every time there was all this comparison. I am taller than, I am weaker than, I am shorter than, this is this, this is that. And it became very clear how that must happen every moment when we're not being aware. And it just looked like an incredible mass delusion. All right, thank you. Okay, you? Okay, thank you, yeah. Uh-huh. 
well, I enjoyed both experiences. And the first one, I really was appreciating all the things my body could do. And the first one being the... Uh, we're not looking into anybody's eyes. Oh, okay. So I just became aware of you. I just was very appreciative of being able to move and being healthy and not having any pain. And then the second one, I love looking into people's eyes because I love connecting with people. And I just loved it, seeing all these beautiful people and their beautiful eyes. And I saw so much brightness in them and um, goodness. And Great. Did you notice anything as you experienced that uh, of a... a Increase or decrease in the sense of self when making eye contact? Well, there would have been an increase. Okay. Because I was connecting. Okay. Mm-hmm. Great. Thank you. Often, I think that's what people observe. All right. Just a couple more. Yeah, right there in near close. Doing the walking without eye contact. Without eye contact, I felt when I'm thinking of myself moving my feet in a conscious way, I'm much more stiff. And then I thought of how my body, when I didn't think of anything and I just flowed, mm-hmm. how miraculous I was not in control, but how this, the, the miracle of whatever makes our body balanced and move and breathe all at once wasn't a conscious thing. It was, an, <coughs> it was just part of just being not whatever. I mean, I wasn't there. It was just sort of just flowing. And it was a miracle to be able to stand and not have to think about it. All right, great, thank you. All right, two more, you and someone else, okay. Um, you know, I, um, when I made contact with people, uh, I held contact with their eyes, and it just, it, for me, it just felt extremely rewarding, mm. and I felt it in my chest, actually. Yeah, thank you, great. All right, all the way in the back, long pass, you got it. Thank you very much. I think that's wonderfully observant, actually, of including that sense of consolidation and then loosening, or fancy word alert, the constellation of self. You know, it kind of emerges and then declines and then decrease and then increases. You know, it's a great question. You know, what is self or apparent selfing organize around? And so, to the point of this slide, I think that one way or another. Uh, you probably noticed uh, one or more of these facts in direct experience. In other words, contra, distinct from or opposed to or contradicting the conventional notions of self as unified, stable, independent, and that which we are or that who we are. In fact, number one, self is compounded. It's not unified. It's made up of many parts, kind of comes and goes, subpersonalities, uh, the one who sets the alarm clock to exercise in the morning and the other one who wakes up at 5.30 going, who set the darn clock, you know? Also, 
self is not stable. It's transient. It's impermanent or selfing or self-related activations. It, it rises and falls, right? It comes and goes. It, it increases and decreases. Uh, and it does so, third, dependently. As she um, pointed out and others have said, it arises or passes away based on little conditions, including social conditions. Uh, it is, uh, there's a nice quote here from John Wellwood in which he talks about selfing in terms of its functional purpose, particularly as it evolved. I mean, we are the most self-centered species on the planet. We are also the most altruistic. Okay, so bad news, good news, if you will. But anyway, both serve adaptive functions. And the apparency of self starts to, what was your word? It wasn't constellate, but cohere. What was your word? Come together? Consolidate, better word, best word of all. Consolidate, you know, to serve a function. And uh, typically, I, I think you'll see that in terms of the three sorts of factors that really prompt that increase or consolidation of self, one is to organize around the pleasant feeling tone or hedonic tone of experience, particularly when it's very pleasant and there's an opportunity to really desire something. Okay? Um, second, self starts really organizing and in fact particularly often starts organizing around the unpleasant feeling tone or the unpleasant hedonic tone uh, in terms of responding to a pain or a threat of pain, physical and especially emotional and social pain. And the third cause, if you will, in terms of the dependent origination of the ebbing and flowing of selfing is social contact. Many people would report that there was very little sense of self walking around the room and then they made eye contact with someone or even more activating, someone who seemed to be frowning at them. Right? Whoa. You know, to go back to what, Robert De Niro and Taxi Driver? You're looking at me? You know? Okay. So, and then last, um, the actual experience of self is that it's a part of the person. Right? Although I actually do want to underline the underlined phrase at the end of this third bullet, self organizes around clinging. In other words, um, uh, it is said sometimes that it is the I who clings, but I think it's also true and actually more profoundly true that very much it's clinging or craving that starts to constellate and then consolidate a self. Self organizes around desire. You can watch it in your own mind. Something happens. There's a stimulus, and then there's there's the you know then there's contact with it. Then there's the feeling tone, pleasant or unpleasant, in particular, around it. Uh, and then on the heels of that processing stream, two, one to two to three seconds in, there's a growing sense of me, myself, and I. Right in that sequencing which is a wonderful observation to have because it becomes increasingly clear that selfing is just organizing around causes and conditions. It's not inherent in causes and conditions. It's dependent on causes and conditions. And it's just another content of mind. So, I have learned from presenting this material repeatedly that it's kind of like uh, crossing a river on thin ice you got to keep moving. Or 
You just fall through the, you fall through the cracks. I've been a rock climber, done a lot of rock climbing and harder rock climbing. Sometimes you just, especially on slabs, you just need to keep moving. Otherwise, because as you move, you start experiencing sliding down these tiny little holes. Just keep going. Okay. So if I can, I'm going to push through the self and the brain part, then take a breath for discussion. Okay. So, so we've seen that in the mind, in other words, in awareness, what we experience, in our phenomenology, the phenomenology, the experiencing, if you will, of self, is that it has these qualities to it. That selfing is compounded, impermanent, dependent, and simply part of a person. In other words, it's just one more content of mind. Contra the typical way of viewing the self. The same thing is true in the brain. Oops. So the properties of self in the brain, which I'll uh, explore with you momentarily with some neuroimagers, um, is that it too in the brain is compounded. In other words, self-related representations or self-related activations are widely distributed throughout the brain. They are compounded. They're distributed. There's no. It's very interesting that if you think about core functions like uh, production of speech or comprehension of speech or the executive control of attention or interoception for the body or the formation of visual spatial memories, those are all highly localized in very specific regions of the brain. Yes, other parts of the brain can take over function, but in the normal brain, there is a ground zero for each one of those functions. You know, production of speech, you know, Broca's area, comprehension of speech, Wernicke's area, executive control of attention, the interior frontal cingulate cortex, interoception, the insula, uh, creation of visual spatial memories, the hippocampus. It's quite specific. You don't need to remember all, any of that, but it's localized. There's no localization of selfing. Remarkably, something is seemingly central to lived experience and enacted life, you know, act, taking action, functioning and operating in the world. There's no localization of selfing in the brain. Second, it's impermanent. These various activations of little areas of the brain that kind of fire up, get more metabolically active, and then kind of go back to their baseline state, ebbing and flowing throughout the brain, are very transient and impermanent. There's no permanent activation of selfing in the brain. That There's no hot spot that just stays lit up all the time for selfing. Um, selfing in the brain arises and, and passes away based on conditions. It's impermanent and, as I'm about to say, dependent. In other words, it depends on the momentary stimulus that prompts a particular sort of self-related functionality or self-related representation. And it's also, in a, a sense, dependent on personal history. Uh, you know, From childhood onward, there's a lot of uh, constellation and consolidation of selfing that manifests zero to three you know, in caregiver experiences. Uh, and it's dependent in the largest sense, in terms of evolutionary time, on the gradual formation over time of certain key neurological uh, capacities and structures. For example, uh, one of the key um, cells that's involved in uh, self-awareness or person awareness, I should really say, or uh, empathy for others are called spindle neurons. It's a particular type of neuron that has evolved in only the last several million years uh, among primates, that kind of neuron, which is found in only a few parts of the brain, notably the anterior cingulate cortex and the insula, which are very ground zero, very central to, at the crossroads of, uh, the sense of uh, personal awareness. Um, 
those uh, spindle neurons are found only among the great apes, where us, bonobos, chimpanzees, gorillas, and orangutans. And remarkably, they also have been discovered based on an independent line of evolution in the whales and probably the dolphins as well. And porpoises, yeah. So we, that again, the sense of selfing, uh, the functionality of selfing is dependent to, contingently dependent on evolution in this very specific and anatomical way. And then last, the sense of self from a neurological standpoint is just a small part of the person as a whole in the sense that whatever momentary activation of, of um, self-related representations or self-related uh, engagements or en- enactments in the world, those are just a small part of the total neural processing stream. Okay. So as an image of that, to kind of lay the stage, this is an image of... There's a, a short exam on this. <laughs> no exams. Uh, anyway, uh, the key takeaway is just what it looks like. Uh, this study took a thousand regions of interest in the brain, quote-unquote, ROIs, and then looked at cross-correlated activity two by two among all the possible combinations of these thousand regions of interest. And that cross-correlation, in effect, is a representation of the informational traffic, the flow of mind, as we are defining it, as neuroscientists do, as the, as the movement of information, in other words, signal signalings distinct from noise or meanings, um, order distinct from chaos, uh, you know, moving through the neural substrate, represented via the neural substrate. That's what we mean by mind, okay? Those, the movements of information through the brain, as it were, are represented in these, wire, in these diagrams that are kind of like the information highway of the cerebral cortex. You know how these satellite shots of Earth from space at night, you can see the highway systems. You know, there's some parts of the brain that are like the, you know, Washington or the New York-Boston axis. Other parts are like, you know, country roads in Slope County, North Dakota, where my dad was born. Which has the, that's right. It has the lowest population density of any county in America. Where my dad was born. I was there recently. The family ranch where he was born is still uh, the logging camp ranch. It's still in the family. And you go there at night and you stand in a fairly high place and you look around. You can see no lights in any direction to the horizon. It's pretty wild. Anyway. Um, so the net of it is that, if, you know, the brain is a giant network moving information around. In this network, self-related activations are all over the place. This particular slide, yeah, is a um, from a literature review uh, that summarized many studies that looked at three particular um, seemingly self-related uh, processes. One, recognizing uh, one's own face among a group of faces. Two, pulling up a personal memory, like how I spent my summer vacation. Three, uh, taking a stand on a difficult moral choice like, uh, you know, the death penalty or something like that. And I forget which is which, but the point is one of those refers to the diamonds, another refers to the uh, crosses, and the other uh, type of self-related activation re- relates to a square. Notice if you can in this picture here, or maybe probably you can't see it given the resolution in, in your own handout, you can see... Yeah, you can see those X's are all over the place. The squares are all over the place. And the the, uh, diamonds are all over the place. They're all over the brain. There's no particular place where um, selfing manifests in the brain. It's compounded and transient, depending on what's happening. 
Or to go a step further, this was another literature review. And uh, in this particular one, uh, a number of studies were uh, examined together. Uh, The white dots refer to self-related activations or or apparent self-activated representations uh, in the brain. And the blue ones are other related. For example, uh, if there's a list of adjectives and um, we ask the subject, okay, uh, which of those, rate those adjectives to the degree they apply to you. Adjectives like curious, uh, aggressive, determined, passionate, uh, patient, what have you. Okay, fine. And then pick someone you know really well, like your romantic partner or your, your father, let's say. And then rate the degree to which those adjectives, those trait adjectives apply to that person. That's other related. Right? Two takeaways here. Number one, notice that the white um, dots are distributed throughout the brain. Again, no place in the... There's no home for the self in the brain. There is a home, yeah, all over the place. And then the second takeaway is to appreciate the degree to which the white dots are mixed up with the blue dots. In other words, if we liken um, you know, the stream of consciousness, if you will, to you know, a river... Okay, loaded with flotsam and jetsam, various contents of mind, the twigs and leaves swirling together momentarily in a kind of self-organizing eddy of apparent selfing um, are flowing amidst all other kinds of twigs and leaves uh, of other related types of momentary eddying or formations of, of structure, which correspond to momentary coalitions of large uh, assemblies, millions, even billions, um, hundreds of billions, perhaps, of assemblies of synapses in a brain that has 500 trillion synapses. Okay, so you see the flotsam and jetsam just swirling together. You know, again, there's no special or specific place for selfing in the brain. Now, what about the most intractable sense of I altogether? And this has been a very interesting question for me because. Uh, you know, when the mind gets really quiet, let's say on retreat, how many of you have done a retreat where there was at least two nights in a row? Most people? Okay, if you haven't, I, I really highly recommend it, unless you're prone to psychotic experiences. Uh, and most people are not. So otherwise, you're good to go. Um, you know, I'll just tell you from a fair amount of experience, be kind to yourself on a retreat. Um, you know, if you are prone to psychotic ther- experiences, <laughs> take your therapist. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, anyway, but when the mind is quiet, it's very interesting that there still seems to be this sort of irreducible localization of experiencing in association to a particular body, if you will, at some basic level. And there's what is called, you know, fancy word alert again in philosophy, ipseity, the fundamental sense, phenomenologically, of um, subjectivity, if you will, or there being an irreducible subject. But notice the movement from subjectivity to subject. It's true that in most conditions, I think there are clearly reports of people who have such a profound experience that there really is not even any sense of subjectivity present. But in ordinary experiences, including deep ordinary experiences in meditation, let's say, um, there is an inherent, embedded, implicit quality of the localization of experiencing to, in reference to a particular 
place, right? And in reference to a particular body, right? There's pretty much no way around that. That's a general finding, both in phenomenology, uh, phenomenological philosophy, uh, as well as in, um, you know, a sense of what's called sensory motor coupling between our movements and our engagements in the world environmentally and the experiencing of those enactments or engagements in the world. Okay. So what we have then, let's look at it directly. And let's do as the Buddha did. He was a profound, he was a fantastic pre-modern, post-modernist. In other words, let's look at it in a deconstructive kind of way. What is there? <laughs> well, we're scientists here, right? In a sense, what there is is a moment of subjectivity that's very, very, uh, that's, that's there in almost all experiences, a moment of subjectivity. There is a quality of subjectivity, a localization of experiencing to a particular perspective, right, within a particular perspective. But what the brain does is that, much as Rick said previously, it indexes across many little Charlie Chaplin moments that are discontinuous or unique or episodic, 24 frames per second, let's say, in, a, in a many movies, and then indexes across them to find an apparent entity, an apparent subject, a noun, across what is really a, a, pro, a series of verbs of subjectivity as a process. See? So just because there's subjectivity does not necessarily mean there is a subject. And kind of getting that, at least for me, and I offer it to you to see for yourself, was really useful. And it helped reduce that kind of last, or, a ma- or not last, but a major kind of presumptiveness about there being a being looking who is looking out through the eyes rather than there is a process of subjectivity. So at the end of the day, we go, what self? Right? So from a neurological standpoint, which corresponds to our experiencing, um, the everyday uh, sense of self, actually, that to which it points does not seem to exist. In other words, there is no coherent, unified, solid I. In fact, there are many, many subsystems arising and passing away in a very fluid sort of way. It, this is transient and impermanent. It's a process. You know, it's a verb, not a noun. It's interesting that in the Pali, the language uh, which the Buddha may well have taught, at least some of the time, and certainly it's the language um, of the earliest surviving written record of what uh, he seems to have taught, which uh, was written down several centuries after he passed away. Uh, in that language, there are very few nouns. It is a language of gerunds. In other words, they don't have dog, they have dogging. Uh, they don't have water, they have watering. They don't have self, they have selfing, uh, which really speaks to the actual truth of things. And then last we have fundamentally, this apparently independent I uh, is built up from many, many uh, underlying conditions. So to use the technical word from Buddhism, self is empty. Self lacks absolute self-arising independent existence. Why don't we take a moment to read this and kind of let it sink in, and then I'll keep going.
Okay. So to sum up, and then we'll uh, move toward a discussion here. Uh, you know, I, I thought myself a lot about the statement, self does not exist. And I went, hmm, what do you actually mean by that? So, for example, um, in ways that are not at all clear, uh, but it's presumed to be the case that there's a one-to-one correspondence between the mind and the brain. Absent a transcendental X-factor principle, what else could it be? So, in other words, if a person... uh, All right, good. Uh, You know those famous uh, Zen koan, right? Uh, Two people looking at a flag. One person says, the flag is moving. The other one says, no, it's the wind that's moving. And then I think it was the, uh, the teacher. I wish I forget which Zen patriarch walked by who said, "No, it's your mind that's moving." So we, we have a little opportunity here. For, thank you, Sean, for the deep teaching here. Sean will go around with a stick and whack us all on the shoulder to help us be a little more alert now. Okay. So uh, the point of all this really here is that if you think of it, uh, if we were to imagine a horse, all right form a picture of a horse or just the idea of horse. That picture or that idea or maybe personal history, a time you were on a horse, hopefully a happy time, not like the time I personally was bucked off a horse, but um, uh, drugs were involved and I'll say no more. Uh, Anyway, before or after, I'll say no more. (laughs) Anyway, this is a story he hasn't shared with me yet. (laughs) I will say no more right now. But anyway... um, you can email me. My email address is on the first slide. But anyway, we won't go further. Okay, so the point of all this is that, you know, those representations are presumably real in the sense that information has a kind of reality to it, even though it's not physical. And the neural substrate of that representation of horse, conceptually or, or imagistically or based on a personal memory, has some physical material basis. It's real in that sense. It's existent in that sense. So in that sense, okay... Um, horse, the representations of horse are real. It's also the case that that which those representations point to is also real. I mean, I personally think uh, horses are real. You know, they're not a Shirley MacLaine vision. You know, imagine they actually have objective existence. That's my view. Okay. Now, what about unicorns? We could have real representations in the brain of a unicorn. At the level of information, presumably the image of a unicorn, happy thoughts from childhood of unicorns, associations to, you know, whatever, uh, you know, Celtic folk tales of unicorns. It's all good, right? And there's some kind of neural substrate that's also existent that maps to that. But that to which they point does not exist. In other words, I, I'm sorry, it's my stance. There are no unicorns. Okay, they, are, they are fictional creatures. They are imaginary beasts. In the same way, there are real representations of self. There are real presumptions of I or me or mine that manifest in the mind and therefore in the brain. Those representations are real. Those activations are real. But that to which they point as unified, um, enduring, uh, independent, and identity does not actually exist. So why do we care? Well, on the one hand, the apparent self does seem to have its uses. Let's do a little thought experiment. Which would you prefer? Someone that's important to you uh, comes to you and says, you know, 
there's just so much love arising in this indeterminate field. There's an occupying of among us here right now. (laughs) I'm going to tell Jan on you. Or this person looks you in the eyes and says, I love you. Which would you rather have? There's a place for that, yeah. Or times there's a real pickle. For me, times coming out of uh, the mountains sometimes, where it's like, wow, we got to really focus here to get out of this pickle alive and intact. Um, you know, I'm going to get down. I'm going to get out of here. I'm going to make my way to my car before the sun sets, and then it's the bar. <laughs> Whatever. Not that anyone would ever do that, of course, given the precepts. But anyway. Um, Past so, life. You know, there's a place for that, right? That determination. Or you stand up for your kids or people you care about. You know, Gandalf at the bridge. You know, I'm not going to let you pass here. You know, Balrog, you're going down. Um, and so forth, literally. Uh, there's a place for that, right? But on the other hand, whoa, let's be very careful. Any kind of selfing, minimally, is a yellow flag condition. And more often than not, it's a big red flag. Because selfing leads to suffering. As soon as we identify with something, as soon as we possess it or claim it as our own, um, our fate is hitched to its, right? And in a world of transient, evanescent phenomena, suddenly we're very vulnerable to those impacts and we're setting ourselves up for suffering, you know? As soon as we take something personally, we're vulnerable instantly to feeling bad, right? As soon as we get all selfie, you know, in our interactions with others, we start sending ripples of suffering uh, that affect other people and harm them and hurt them, and often rebound to our coming back this way. You know, someone wants okay. to find karma as hitting golf balls in a shower. <laughs> That's a good friend. We send that out, it comes back. All right? Okay. So, to sum it all up, four words, as they say, apparently in death row. I've been told this is actually true. I've never been there, etc. And they also seem to say in the monastery, no self, no problem. Okay. So, let's talk about this. What do you make of it? What do you think? Please. It's a giant relief. <laughs> all right. And maybe at this point, if it's okay, we will pass around the mic just to, because people may have more thoughtful right. comments than quick. But you said it. It's cool. It's a giant relief. Yeah. I think it really is. It's wonderful to go, whoa. I, very loosely defined, am a person, but don't need to be a self. You know, to sum it up, there's a, a t- teacher who, I apologize, I can't recall his name, a Southeast Asian traditional teacher who, who said it like this, and it, it's easier to understand in print, but you can get it orally. He says, love yourself. But don't love your self. Right there. Mm-hmm. Okay, others? Great. Um, so, so you're saying that the one in part of the brain, the selfie goes all over the brain. But when, well, what happens when you make it to an emotion? Like anger. So, so when you do, sorry, when you do the research, say like it's a really happy moment. Does that happen all over the brain with the self, 
or if it's an angry moment, does itself happen all over the brain as well? Great. Does itself and the emotion? Yeah, thank the, you. Great question. Yeah, it's a good question. The, the answer to that is that the emotion... The, the emotions appear to, uh, are both formed by what you think is going on at the moment. So there's a whole bunch of subroutines that, that, that show where, that say what's happening. Particularly if you've selfed and somebody has, quote, done you harm, unquote, there's a picture of that. The emotions attend, then are triggered and appear to arise from largely the limbic system and the hypothalamus. And so the cortex, which is trying to figure out what's going on, is broad, is, you know, broadsided from below, you know, in the Pirates of the Caribbean kind of idea. It's broadsided from below by these, by these, you know, literally emotions that are arising. I think our interest, we have some very interesting metaphors in the way that we, uh, we describe things. We describe the arising of emotions, and anatomically that actually describes what's going on. It comes up from basal structures into the cortex. But at the cortical level, there's no, there's no localization. There's visual representations of what's going on. There's the language representations of he said, she said, I'm going to say, that kind of stuff. There's the memory of what was said or what was done or what was pictured. So all of these same subroutines that Rick was talking about, all these little different circuits spread all over the brain are operating in high-intensity moments, but they're, they're hijacked by the emotions. So that they, they that their ability to process correctly what is happening in the moment is impeded by all that emotional loading that's going on. So there's a there, it gets to be a very complicated situation when you when you have an emotional experience that you're trying to deal with, which is why actually that this stuff is best experienced in uh, in a quiet meditative state, so that when you walk into an emotional interaction with somebody. You don't take it so seriously. It isn't real. Anger, anger is arising. Well, maybe I better look at why I, why I am angry rather than punch. You know, ask questions first, punch later. <laughs> Can we erase the last ten seconds from the tape? We're recording this part. Yeah. Okay, I'll keep moving, and I want to go to the next slide actually to pick up what you said. As the Buddha said, you know. The release of the sense of self is the highest happiness. Like you said, what a relief. No self, no problem. Okay, great. Yes, please. I guess my question is the opposite side of the coin. Um, You were talking earlier about uh, reincarnating good states. And I'm assuming, but I'd like to hear your answer, um, appreciating gratitude, thankfulness, um, right. Bringing that up on purpose is somehow in doing that kind of thing you're talking about. Every mind moment that you're going to enter into is going to have the. It, it's not like everything gets completely wiped out. It's not like you have no memory. But the state of the brain is uh, for this moment is followed by a little bit of dyssynchrony to be able to process the next incoming data set. Think of evolutionarily. You have you have a, 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 uh, the brain is going to have a particular state. Well, then a new sensation is going to arise. You have to clear you have to clear the ground to be able to perceive what is just happening, and then perceive that in the context of the the causes and conditions from the Buddhist phrase or the personal and 
um, biologic history of your organism for that moment. Okay? I'm starting to make sense to you here. And then, and then you will incarnate into processing that sensation. So, if in the, if I have been, uh, if I have been, uh, raising my level of warmth and goodness and compassion and I, and I, you know, I'm really filling my emotional experience with positive stuff, then I'm likely to experience that, the dropping of the glasses is, well, that's kind of fun. As opposed to, who the hell tried to break my glasses if I've been filling my past moments with anger and suffering and I-ness and meanness and what are you doing to me? You see how that works? So, and so, so from my perspective, and I'll own this really particularly as my own, uh, reincarnation is a mind moment by mind moment thing. And you don't have to live separate lives separated by bardo experiences in order to talk about reincarnation because it's a, it's, it's a true event in this life right now. And so what gets reincarnated has the residue, the karma, of what's come before. Okay. So how about over there? What's happening in the brain when we get stuck in a story? I was having a conflict with my mom yesterday, and we both had these moments of really being stuck in each of our stories. <coughs> and I'm wondering what's happening there and what, what can allow for an opening in those places. The... Uh, in the afternoon, especially, we're going to talk about uh, two major networks, uh, one being in the middle of the brain that's very involved in that sort of activity. You know, the, the, it's sometimes referred to as the narrative self, right? And then there's another network that's on the side, uh, particularly on the right side, that's very involved in sort of open, spacious awareness that has much less sense of self, including a vanishing sense of self, uh, very much a here and now focus, not much language, and uh, not much uh, focus on the past or the future or attempt to drive to any kind of a goal. So probably what's happening is there's a lot of midline activation mm-hmm. associated with other things going on there. Right. Um, okay, a couple more. Uh, what do you think about this whole idea of, wow, who am I? <laughs> okay, all the way in the back. Yeah, I went through that fairly quickly. Um, uh, People who have grown up in a way, and this will be a segue which I'll slide into momentarily into the healthy narcissistic supplies part, which we'll do and then we'll have lunch, um, is that um, uh, that, uh, if people are raised in a way in which their their sense of of self, which starts to blur into sense of person, but it, it does seem to relate to a sense of me, as defective and um, unworth, not worth anything, or or a kind of chaotic, dissociative organization, if you will, of the personality in people who have, let's say, a dissociative identity disorder or a borderline personality disorder, talking a little technically here, you know, it's difficult for those people to have really solid relationships. That's what that means. And... Um, uh, I think that uh, if I were to 
edit the slide slightly, I would be a little more careful in the language there because I think I would say uh, more broadly it's people without um, positive person-related structures tend to have impaired relationships. Okay? And we're going to get to that, which also speaks to your question of what is the place for wholesome practices like gratitude or uh, appreciating one's own worth. What's the place for that in people that are on a path of decreasing selfing? Okay, just a couple more people. Yeah. Just uh, as I listen to all this, I I kind of am beginning to kind of muse on a a somewhat broader perspective, and I just want to know how this all fits in with this. How does this, all of our thinking, all of our discussion today has been brain-centered? It's been what's going on in the brain, what are the different parts of the brain, what, you know, where is things located, how is it, how is it related to each other? How does that relate to, let's say, the Eastern conception of thinking and processing and interrelating that perhaps is is represented by the chakras, where the chakras are, I can speak to that. are from the Western perspective, our nerve our nerve plexus, where different where, where parts of this this processing does take place, and what really came to mind was while we were walking around and while I was listening to people uh, describe their experiences, they moved from a self-oriented brain focus to a more general experientially oriented chakra focus to I'm feeling this in different in different regions of my body. So I'm just learning how this all fits yeah. together. Cool. Thank you. At the, be- at the beginning, I alluded to, actually I think even in the meditation, I was talking about when we speak of the of the mind and the brain, um, we actually are not talking about the the three pounds of tofu between the ears. The nervous system extends from the top of your scalp to the tips of your toes. It's um, and if you look at the chakra system and you look at the autonomic nervous system, you'll find tremendous overlap between collections of autonomic nervous plexi sympathetic and parasympathetic ganglion, and the locations of the chakras. Uh, so a, a lot of the, and if you think about the chakra system, it's all about internal perception. The, the brain does not have really good ways of localizing internal, uh, internal perception. We talk about referred pain all the time. Uh, when you have a heart attack, uh, you have pain into your left arm. There is nothing happening in your left arm in a heart attack. It's all centered in the heart. But the wiring diagram for somatic experience, for I'm going to touch Rick on the arm, the wiring diagram on the cortex between the heart and the arm overlaps so that conscious awareness perceives the pain as happening in the heart and happening in the arm simultaneously. So we don't really have real good solid localization of here, there, here, there in terms of perceiving internally. But... If you look, for example, in the Tibetan system, they talk about heart mind. That we that the brain that the brain is actually part of heart mind, which would include the the somatic sh- uh, systems the, and also the internal uh, chakra or you know interoceptive kinds of systems. We have in the English language the concept of gut feelings, because it, when you actually if you actually look at uh, what happens, and there's a great book uh, by Antonio Damasio called The Feeling of What Happens. What ha- when you start to have a feeling, the first thing that happens is actually some internal 
awareness of an internal set of the gut, the heart, uh, you know, muscle tone, things like that, that begins to arise in the brain. And then that gets labeled as a particular feeling. So this, this system, uh, how I would take actually, uh, in terms of your, perce- your perception about the, what, when people were walking around, one of the things that's happening is if you are not looking at people, you are, you are able to concentrate internally. But 40% of your brain is visually dependent. Is, is, is set up to process visual information. We're a highly visually dependent animal. And so when you are up and looking at other people, you are thrown into the part of the brain that does tremendous amounts of visual processing. So you're literally thrown out of the internal body awareness and the insular cortex. I'm going to bring that one concept up again. The insular cortex that's responsible for interoception. And you're thrown back into the occipital cortex, which is processing visual information, doing lots of threat detection. I mean, a lot of people talk about the positive experiences that people were having looking into each other's eyes. I saw a number of people that had exhibited an amazing behavior, and it's almost uncontrollable. Look, glance down. Look, <laughs> glance down. There were about 20 people that did that literally walking right out in front of you. It's a behavioral control mechanism because visual, visual contact can be both uh, illuminating, enlightening, entrancing, and threatening, all simultaneously. And so all this stuff just kind of happens, but it's thrown into, uh, it's because when you look at somebody, you're thrown, in, you're thrown into the piece of the brain. You don't look at somebody with your heart. You may feel a heart reaction, or a gut chakra reaction, or a sacral uh, second chakra reaction to somebody, and that will arise, but that's because of circuits that happen. So the chakra system is absolutely woven into this. Um, and I think in Western medicine, if you start looking at interos, inter, the term is interoception, you will find most of the, of the, the Western analysis on, uh, that you would then uh, re-language as, as chakra uh, effect. To, to build briefly on, on Rick's response there, <clears throat> and then let's segue to a practice. Uh, we think of the notion that, quote, the brain makes the mind, unquote, and of course the mind makes the brain, um, as a kind of shorthand for appreciating the ways in which mind, which is to say information flows, uh, without resorting to a transcendental X factor, just keeping it within the frame of Western science, uh, and, and including not resorting to subtle energies that are not yet conventionally understood, at least in a standard physics textbook, um, that actually the systems that support the flows of information really are not just located in the brain, but it's a brain intertwined with a nervous system, right. which is intertwined with a cardiovascular, immune, uh, digestive, uh, hormonal, et cetera, et cetera, series of systems, which is then entwined in nature and the world, and increasingly now through technology, through mechanical devices. So it actually is quite cool to appreciate the degrees to which, factually, just simply based on that analysis, which is, I think, see for yourself, factually the case, right? That the informational systems that 
have ebbs and flows of thoughts, feelings, desires, uh, information, storage, and so forth. Uh, you know, data, that we, you know, whether it's a personal memory that we get supported by glancing through a, a book. You know, I have a series of photographs in uh, the hallway in my home that were taken when our kids were young and we put them up and I'll find myself even now, and that was just 15 years ago, say some of them, and I'll glance at them and it will remind me that I was there with the, my kids. You know, that's a distributed data source of the information of personhood, rickness, if you will. Anyway, it's quite amazing to really appreciate the ways in which that uh, selfing or personing is really based on these very distributed systems that start becoming coextensive, ultimately into the whole wide world and even beyond into the right. whole universe, right. uh, both here and now and over time. Anyway, and that then just takes us right out into what the Buddha called anatta, you know, not self, or a sense of being. Um, I'll do this quote at the very end, to be enlightened by all things. As self, the sense of I, dis- categorically distinct, separated from all things, starts settling and fading, even to the ultimate extent, there's a degree to which there's a sense that comes in, as self goes out, as selfing goes out, what comes in is a sense of the whole world the human world, the interpersonal field, and the object world, you know, physical and or animate and inanimate, alive and not alive, uh, that then is is in, informing us, infusing us, nurturing us, filling us, being us, moment to moment to moment. So as Dogen says, practice is about working with this. There are other things to work with as well, but boy, this is really central. And it's a long practice because, at least in the Buddhist model, which has in it four stages of awakening, of enlightenment, it's only at the final fourth stage, the stage of being an arahant, that the last subtle conceits, that was the Buddhist word translated into English, the last subtle conceits of self pass away. So it's okay if self keeps coming back, you know? It's like the Terminator, you know? You think you killed it and it's there again, you know? You know, as they say in the you monastery. You a second term. Yeah, you think you're so enlightened? You think you're so selfless? Go home for the holidays. <laughs> so, it's a long practice. So that said, there's some things that can really help, which moves us to the next topic, Okay. All right, which I'll move through fairly quickly. <laughs> so paradoxically, again, this is, has really struck me as well as a clinician, a, a guy also quite trained developmentally, you know, you know really love children, have worked a lot with them, including the zero to three age. I did my dissertation on 15-month-olds and their, and their mothers. Anyway, um, isn't it very interesting that, as I think Jack Engler said uh, 30 years ago in a famous phrase, uh, to paraphrase it, uh, you need to develop an ego in order to transcend it. Mm-hmm. You know, and so there's this interesting notion. I think the Buddhist metaphor of the raft is is useful here, where he talked about how, when faced with a river of suffering or faced with some you know difficulty, some challenge, we build a raft. We develop an approach, let's say, a method um, that we use to get across to the other side. But once we're on the other side, we don't keep walking around holding the raft over our head. All right. It's a it's an intermediate step. It's a transitional object, if you will. It's a transitional method. So it's interesting to think about the ways in which healthy development, which includes in psychological terminology, uh, narcissistic supplies uh, like mirroring or attunement. I see you. I think about the movie Avatar. 
you know, mm-hmm. that just came out. You know, their mode of greeting, very primally, which also you find in some uh, native uh, peoples in the world, is "I see you," or you could similarly, similarly say "I hear you" or "I recognize you." You again, hopefully, more person than I, but that kind of recognition of "I see you" and "You matter to me," and I got your back, is really important to have. And you're special. You're prized, you're cherished, you're appreciated, you're respected. That's the most amazing drawing any kindergartner could ever make. And mommy loves you forever. That's important. But what happens if we don't get it, right? We develop a hungry heart, you know? And so self, selfing, gets very busy around that hole in the heart. Either going out there to get supplies that we're missing, and kind of working it with people. How am I doing? Kind of like me, don't you know? <laughs> yeah, I know. It was a wonderful memo. I wrote it. Good. Do you like my look? Yeah. Left side or right side? Right? Well, we do that because in various more subtle ways, of course. Not um, very. <laughs> or in my case, not very. <laughs> Selfing gets very busy around that hole in the heart. Or alternately, self gets busy in a different way. Denying the yearning, the longing, the hunger for those normal, healthy, narcissistic supplies and acting indifferent to them. Because, honestly, the owning of the longing for them is associated with so much pain. So there's a different strategy, a kind of dismissal in oneself of the need for narcissistic supplies, which often, alas, in terms of de- developmental psychology and attachment theory, can become a dismissal of the narcissistic longings in one's children or one's friends. Or one's friends. Um, and which I think sometimes can happen in relationships. As a couples counselor, um, I do other kinds of therapy, but as some, someone who's worked with couples a lot, I've been interested in seeing, to use a little lingo here, what happens when you have someone with more of a schizoidal style and someone with a more narcissistic style as a couple. It's often difficult for that more detached, uh, seemingly indifferent, dismissive person to respond to the longings from the more narcissistically, normal narcissistically uh, organized person for mirroring, empathy, attunement, cherishing, validation, acknowledgement, prizing, and so forth. So working with that can be quite useful. If you know, if you're in a relationship, you're on either side of that divide, what I just said might be useful. Okay. So then the question becomes, what to do? And that's where we come to the core idea of taking in the good, internalizing positive experiences as a vitally important raft on the path of awakening. This slide here, first I gotta say, because, you know, sometimes we think we have to be really perfect to, t- to take in narcissistic supplies, but as Leonard Cohen writes here, a Zen practitioner and a marvelous poet, we're all cracked. And that's how the light gets in. So how to take in the good, which is what we're gonna do momentarily in a practice here, in terms of some key narcissistic supplies. There are three basic steps to taking in the good, which is really at the heart of, or a very, key um, causal factor in many, if not most, therapies, many, if not most, paths of personal growth, and many, if not most, paths of spiritual development. It's a key factor. It's a key element. Uh, First thing is, we have to let the positive fact become a positive experience. 
So, for example, if someone gives you a compliment, or you accomplish something, or you recognize some good quality in yourself, that's a positive fact, but does it move the needle? Very often, we leave money on the table, quote-unquote, because we don't let the needle move. Second step is to savor, is to stay with, as a kind of concentration practice, if you will, for 10, 20, 30 seconds in a row, to stay with the positive experience. So it can transfer from short-term memory buffers down into long-term storage. The way the brain works is it has a negativity bias that helped our ancestors survive in which it registers negative experiences instantly. It has dedicated fast-track systems that register negative experiences right up front. Once burned, forever shot. Okay? But positive experiences, unless they're million-dollar moments, basically, need to, uh, need regu- are, are, uh, are dealt with through regular memory systems. And regular memory systems, basically to move something from short-term buffers to long-term storage, needs to have it be as intense as possible, as multimodal and felt in the body or enacted as possible, and as lasting as possible, as any school teacher knows. All right? So that's what we do in the second step. We savor it. We relish it. We allow ourselves to feel good. It's okay to look like you're having a really bad day, but inside, you're feeling great. Okay? That's the second step. And then all the while, the third step, sensing and intending that it's sinking in. Those are the three steps of taking in the good. Okay? Any quick question about these steps or why we would use them for healthy narcissistic supplies? And what were the three elements that you Oh, they're up there in the, the little bullets. As lasting as possible, we sustain it. Right? Is that what you're asking me about, the three things? In other words, what, what helps an experience stick to our ribs? Yeah. You know, we go through life. Good things happen. Or including our realizations on the cushion. We realize things. There's a breakthrough. But do we learn? Path of awakening is a path of learning. Right? It's a path of gradual learning over time. How do we help learning occur? Um, which means building structure and changing structure in the brain based on experience-dependent neuroplasticity. How do we actually do that? Well, one of the major keys, particularly in terms of phenomenology, our experiencing of things, is to have something last as long as possible, be as intense as possible, and be as whole body or enacted as possible. As a general principle, neurons that fire together wire together. The more that fire, and the longer they fire, and the more intensely they fire, the more that you start stitching those positive experiences into the fabric of your brain and therefore your person. I'm going to keep rolling with this, okay? Just in the interest of lunch and experiencing. Because there are many kinds of supplies, and they include things like corn chips and juice. Okay, so let's do a practice here, all right? So I thought we could focus on three key wholesome narcissistic supplies in the next sections, feeling cared about, feeling prized, and fundamentally feeling like a good person. I won't talk through the details of each of these slides. You might look at them, and you might um, be open in your own mind to whatever your own personal um, key missing supplies might be. I think there are some people, and I'm actually fortunate to be married to one, who had a really benign childhood, a fully benign and fully providing, emotionally providing childhood. That's great. And there's not much sense of all 
of uh, being cracked in this particular way, you know, really needing and missing healthy narcissistic supplies. But I think most people, me included, without a doubt, had some things missing or there were some injuries or bumps and bruises that were fairly significant along the way. Or, frankly, in adulthood, not just parents and so forth, but peers or as an adult in the last job, the last marriage, the last uh, conversation with the in-laws, whatever it is, there, you know, for many people, is a sense of important uh, supplies not being as... Mother Hubbard's cupboard is not as stocked as one would really like <laughs> in this regard. Okay, and you, knows, you know what yours is, you know. Uh, for me, it was around feeling included. Uh, I was very young going through school, so I felt like an outsider a lot, uh, for example. You might know what yours is. And yet I have felt loved, you know, throughout my life. So, you know, that's my particular supplies, not so much around feeling loved, it's around feeling included in groups and valued in groups. So you might think about what your particularity might be as you understand it. Okay? So, but we're going to look at, we're going to work with three in particular, feeling cared about, feeling prized, in other words, special, or really appreciated, really cherished, really valued. And then third, a fundamental sense of, you know, no halo required, feeling like a good person. Now, as we do this, as we do any kind of practice, one of two things happen. You either get the result or you get the obstruction. Right? Isn't that true in life? It's one or the other. And so, as we do this, we're going to, we're not just going to be mindful of whatever's there. We're going to try to kindle some things. We're going to try to open to some things, encourage them to be present, and then take them in. Often that works. But sometimes it's like trying to light a fire with wet wood. So you do it the best you can. And at that point, there might be an obstruction or something not happening. The thing to do there is to be aware of the obstruction. And then as best one can, after a few moments, and kind of the just right amount of time, move back to whatever the positive practice is and try to keep going from there. Okay? And then we'll we'll just segue directly from this practice, which will have three steps to it or parts to it, uh, feeling cared about, feeling prized, and feeling like a good person, and we'll segue into lunch. Okay? Want to try? Let's give it a whirl. Uh, it, you're welcome to write if you like, or you might just want to be quiet with your eyes closed inside yourself. It's really okay. All right. So for starters, you can get a basic sense of, of being here, being centered in the body, just in an ordinary kind of way. Establishing a kind of base of awareness of the body as a whole. which is a nice support for a general quality of spaciousness of mind. That can let things come and go in awareness without struggling with them. (laughs) 
So our first focus is feeling cared about, which includes uh, being liked or being appreciated or respected, being included, belonging, or even feeling really cherished, really loved. It's natural for a movement into feeling cared about to also associate to, initially at least, feeling not cared about, like disappointed or rejected or underloved. That's that's natural. But as you can, after being aware of those other associations, move the spotlight of attention back to the positive practice we're doing here, which is about feeling cared about. Okay. So bring to mind one or more beings that you know cares about you. It could be beings in your life today, people, perhaps animal companions, a pet, or beings in your life earlier, such as a grandparent who who really loved you, even uh, spirit entities or the divine altogether, whatever works for you that then can help you move in the first step of taking in the good to a feeling of being cared about. So the awareness of the fact that one or more beings does indeed care about you moves into being a feeling of being cared about. And then as you can, really open to and encourage this experience of feeling cared about to grow inside you and last. Maybe bringing to mind other beings or other situations in which you were cared about, allowing that to add more nuances and depth, maybe even intensity, to the experience here and now of feeling cared about in the second step of taking in the good, really savoring and relishing sinking into, marinating in, feeling cared about. It's all right if that feeling of being cared about crumbles or is subtle or mild or arises amidst other experiences like pain or loneliness. That's fine. Keep helping yourself take in the good here by coming back to the sense of being cared about. And then in the third step, sense and intend that this experience of feeling cared about is really sinking into you. Like, a, like water into a sponge or a golden light shining down into you. Perhaps feeling cared about like a soothing balm sinking down into old places inside that didn't feel so cared about 
soothing them, bit by bit healing them, and gradually even replacing them with a growing sense inside your bones of feeling cared about. might strengthen this experience by putting a hand on your heart or perhaps a hand on your cheek, whatever you like. Sinking into feeling cared about and as you do, it sinking into you. Second focus here, allowing the sense of feeling cared about to kind of maybe move to the background while uh, continuing to enjoy it if it's present there for you. Focus now on one or more instances in which you were appreciated or respected or valued. These could be from recent memory or ongoing conditions in which, for example, you've been promoted to an important job or you have a demanding occupation or you have multiple people in your life who really appreciate you, your clients, your patients, perhaps your family. And you can also think about specific instances when something really came through that that really helped you feel appreciated, prized. And as you bring to awareness these instances, in terms of the first step of taking in the good, allow yourself to feel prized, feel uh, respected, valued. opening to and then savoring these experiences, intensifying them of feeling prized, respected, valued, wanted. That's the second step. And then all the while in the third step, sense and intend that these experiences of feeling prized are sinking into you.
if voices of self-doubt, like, oh, if they only knew, come to mind, that's okay. Keep returning to the facts of the uh, appreciation of you coming from others, (laughs) as well as your own recognition of some accomplishments that deserve appreciation and respect. Keep coming back to the facts that make it appropriate to feel appreciated and valued and respected. You might even want to help yourself by sitting up a little bit more as if you were in a healthy sense proud of yourself or had healthy self-respect. Perhaps in the traditional instruction for meditation, like sitting like a king or queen on your throne, not with haughtiness or arrogance, but with a sense of dignity and self-respect. And see if that also supports the experience right now of feeling of worth. Maybe sensing that these experiences here and now of worth are sifting down into and making contact with places inside you that have felt inadequate or ashamed or unworthy. Feelings of self-worth being more prominent in the mind than those old places of shame or inadequacy or taint or defectiveness and gradually soothing them like a balm to them, giving perhaps younger layers or aspects of you the reassurance, the recognition, the valuing that they've always deserved and needed and longed for. as you can, perhaps sense that places inside that have felt unworthy or inadequate or ashamed are actually absorbing and taking in, internalizing the felt sense here and now of being of worth.
All right. And then third, allow the sense of worth, whatever is present for you is fine, to settle more into the background. And then moving on here, bring to mind some positive quality that factually you know you have. Ordinary virtues are perfectly fine, like patience or grit, determination, fairness, basic kindness, a desire for justice, a willingness to be generous. Insight, mindfulness, big heart, whatever it may be, be aware of one or more good qualities and then open to a natural, simple gladness that that good quality is indeed present in you. Notice any resistance to doing a kind of inventory of multiple objectively valid good qualities that you have. And one by one, as you can, taking a few moments for each one, registering a sense of gladness about its presence in you with a sense of that gladness sinking in. Even combined with a felt sense of what that good quality is like in your body and your emotions, your attitudes and your mind. One by one, an inventory here with gladness of at least several and even a dozen or more good qualities that you possess.
and to sum up, be aware of what it's like now to have spent some time opening to and encouraging and then taking in positive experiences, ordinary positive experiences that everyone deserves and needs to have of feeling cared about, feeling of worth, and feeling like a good person. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.